Thank you, and you can be seated today. My goodness, great singing here at such an early worship hour. Thank you for that. And as a people of God, we have something to sing about, do we not? And uh, because he gave us life beyond the grave. Those are not just empty words. That is the truth. He gave us life beyond the grave. Death is not the end. Death is simply the vehicle that carries us into the presence of our Creator. And when death comes my way one of these days, it could be today, it could be next year. I don't know when that's going to be. But I know when my blood stops circulating through my body and my lungs go flat and they pull that sheet over me and say he's dead... It'll be like Billy Graham said, I'll be more alive then than I've ever been in my life. Amen? Because he gives life beyond the grave. I want to direct your attention today to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 13 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 13, we have a lengthy passage uh, that is uh, before us today as we make our journey through this wonderful Old Testament uh, book, somewhat obscure book, but nonetheless has some great life lessons for us. And I believe uh, we're going to discover some of those today as we look at a message entitled, A House That Is Divided. A House That Is Divided. Now let me say right from the start that Jesus said, A house that is divided cannot stand. It is just a matter of time, whether it is a home, whether it is a church, whether it is a nation, whether it is a planet, but a divided people will soon fall. Jesus made that comment. He made that prophecy. We see that played out all around us, and we certainly see that the Scripture teaches that as a truth. So today we're going to look at a house divided. The time was June the 18th, 19, or excuse me, 1858. And there was a, a young Senate uh, candidate who stood before the state capitol and he gave an address. And he used those words of Jesus to introduce his remarks. His name was Abraham Lincoln. And it didn't help him get elected for the Senate at that particular time. But it did help become one of the most famous speeches that Abraham Lincoln ever gave. Listen to what he says. This is a portion of his speech. He said, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it to cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it, and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of the ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become lawful in all states, old as well as new, north as well as the south. So Abraham Lincoln used those words of Jesus to challenge people to be united in a time that a civil war that would fraction our, fracture our nation and divide brothers and sisters and family members, one from another, the north to the south. Well, long before that American Civil War took place, there was another civil war that took place that is very famous, found for us here in the book of First Kings. This is a civil war that happened among God's people, the Hebrews. I find it kind of ironic with all that they did and the effort they put into building a great nation and finally establishing their own territory in the promised land only to allow it to slip through their hands and to become no longer a nation united but a nation divided. 
Now you'll remember, I've asked you to read through the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. I hope you've been doing that. If you've done that, then you should be familiar with this text before us today. It is, it is one that we don't get to very often. So my prayer is that you've been able to read this ahead of time and you know already what is happening here. But you will remember that when King Solomon was the king of Israel, that one of his problems was he led such incredible building campaigns that he overtaxed his people in order to pay for the building projects that he initiated. And they were, they were struggling under the oppression of this taxation. Well, when King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam was going to come to the throne. And some of the guys who were around Rehoboam during that day said to him, listen, you've got to lift this heavy tax burden that your father placed on everybody. Then Rehoboam listened to those words, and this is what he said. He said, my father disciplined you guys with a whip, but I'm going to discipline you with a scorpion. Now, you read that, you think, what in the world is he saying there? Really, the, the whip, you know what a whip is, uh, the handle with a long leather strap on it that would sting uh, those who the taskmaster would direct it to. Well, the scorpion was also a whip. It was a handle with several long straps of leather that would come out of it, similar to the flagrum that was used to scourge Jesus uh, during his trial and his ultimate crucifixion. So all the way back in the Old Testament, Rehoboam says, you think the sting of my father's reign was tough. You wait till you feel the sting of my reign. And because of that, a civil war took place. The country was fractured. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, kept two tribes known as Judah. They were in the south where Solomon's temple would be built, or was built, there at Jerusalem. A man by the name of Jeroboam led the ten tribes, other ten tribes of Israel, into rebellion, and they became the northern tribes called, their capital was up in Samaria. And for years, these warring factions, the civil war, would, would take place. Now, if you're like me, you have a hard time remembering was Rehoboam in the north or the south? Was Jeroboam in the north or the south? Who was really who? Here's a way that I have uh, tried to make it stick in my, in my mind. Rehoboam, R-E, it begins with R-E. I look at him as the real king because he was Solomon's son. He had worship there in Jerusalem at Solomon's temple. I look at Jeroboam, J-E, as the jealous king. I started to call him the jerk, but I didn't think that sounded too reverent. So I'm going to use the word jealous, all right? So Jeroboam, J-E, he was in the north. And what he did is he instituted a whole new system of worship. And it was going to cause continual fracture and split in the divisions of the north and the south. I mean, those, that, that Mason-Dixon line went right down through Israel and cut off the north from the south. And there were continually warring parties between the north and the south. So what we're going to, to do today is we're going to look at not Rehoboam. Who was he? He was the real king of the south, right? Solomon's son. We're going to look at 
Jeroboam, the jealous king, the one who reigned in the north. Now listen, let me just say right at the outset, he was a bad guy. Do you know he was the first of 19 kings that would rule in the north and every one of them walked in his footsteps and every one of them, it seemed to be worse than the one who came before. In fact, the ultimate the ultimate judgment for the, the uh, kingdom of the north was when the Assyrian Empire came in. And the Bible says that the reason God used the Assyrians to destroy the northern empire was a direct result of Jeroboam's sin. So we're going to take some time and we're going to look at him today. And again, it is a very lengthy passage. That's why I did not read it to you before we started. But when Jeroboam became king... Listen to his first executive order, okay? When he became king, this is the first thing he did, the king of the north. Rather than allowing his people to come down to the south, to Jerusalem, to worship, he instituted his own system of worship in a place called Bethel and a place called Dan. He built golden calves for his people to worship. He did away with the Levitical priesthood. In fact, all the Levitical priests, the Levite priests, ran across the border and they were serving in Solomon's temple down in the south. So he creates his own order of priests. So here is a pseudo-king living in a pseudo-religious country, leading in pseudo-religious worship system, and God is not going to allow that to happen. In fact, go back to chapter 12, and let's pick up the reading in verse 28. Chapter 12, verse 28. Whereupon the king took counsel. This is Jeroboam, the jealous king. He made two calves of gold and said to them, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Remember, he doesn't want them to cross that border, that Mason-Dixon line. He says, Behold the gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. So again, here was his concern. He was concerned that if the people in the northern kingdom cross that Mason-Dixon line and they go down to the south and they worship at Solomon's temple on the time of Passover, that they may never come back to Israel again, that they will stay in Judah in the southern tribes, that somehow their heart would be knit with their brethren who were down there in the southern kingdom. So he says, rather than you going down there to Jerusalem in Judah and worshiping at Solomon's temple, we'll just We'll just do it all ourselves up here. So he creates this counterfeit system of worship. Again, he builds temples to house the idols, the, the golden calves that he wants them to worship that he says led them out of Egyptian slavery. He institutes his own priestly order and leads them in the worship of false gods. Well, the Bible says that he does this in two places. One is called Dan, that's the tribe of Dan. The other is in a city called Bethel, Bethel. You remember what happened at Bethel? This is where Jacob wrestled with the angel. You remember? And touched him on, the angel touched him on the thigh and he walked with a limp the rest of his life, meaning you'll never walk the same again when, you, when you're touched by the Lord. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. His children became the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. The name Bethel means house of God. 
Bethel. Bet is the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet. You got Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet. Bet means house. El means God. Bethel is the house of God. Right here in this city known as the house of God is where Jeroboam, this jealous king to the north, institutes this false system of religious worship. So what happens as you move into chapter 13 is Jeroboam has this big ceremony, if you will, where he is going to institute or kind of kick off this system of false worship. And he is, he is uh, here at Bethel, and he is here at the altar, and he is going to make a big showing before all the people who come from miles around dressed in their finest attire, and Jeroboam dressed as only a king in his day could be dressed, with all the pomp and the circumstance that a king with his kind of authority could muster, is there before this altar in Bethel, and God shows up in a dramatic fashion. First of all, God sends to him an unknown messenger. Now, I don't really have an outline. I really have more bullet points this morning. I'm going to give you six of those bullet points. Uh, don't get afraid because usually I give you about three. So I'm not going to preach two hours, just about an hour and a half. But uh, no, I won't preach that long. But uh, I'm going to give you six very quick bullet points this morning that'll kind of help you um, navigate through this chapter, okay? First of all, I want you to jot down the words, the unknown messenger. You'll see this in verse one. Behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. So where did he come from? He came from the southern kingdom, right? Down around Jerusalem in Judah. Here was a nameless, faceless preacher. He is an unidentified messenger. We don't know who he is. We don't know anything about his background. The Bible just simply says he comes out of Judah. He goes to Bethel. As Jeroboam is standing at the altar preparing to do incense, to dedicate this new system of worship. Now, we don't know who this man is, this unknown messenger, but who he was is not important. But the message that he preaches is of vital importance. That's the way it is with every man of God. It doesn't matter if the world ever remembers my name or even if you ultimately remember my name. That doesn't matter, but the message that I preach matters because it is not my word, it is what God's word has to say. And I just try my best and my hardest to declare what God has already written. You know, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. And I just try to preach what God places on my heart and what comes right from his word. Here was an unknown messenger. We don't know anything about him, his name, his background, his education level, nothing. He just comes, and the Scripture says that he is going to preach a message to this wicked Jealous king, Jeroboam. Now listen, every true man of God will try his best. In fact, I think if you look it up in the scriptures, I think there's only a few instances, maybe about seven or eight instances in the scripture where anybody is referred to as a man of God. It is not a phrase that is used very frequently uh, in the Scripture, very, very sparingly do you find that word. That's why I, I'm uncomfortable referring to myself that way because I see my faults and my shortcomings, and I want to be God's man, but I struggle with being everything that I believe God wants me to be. 
But listen, every true person of God, man or woman or boy or girl who loves God, listen, our role, listen, our role in this world is to help other people know the God who's made such a difference in our lives. Do you know the Apostle Paul said, though we or anybody else or even an angel from heaven come and preach any other message other than the gospel, he said, let him be accursed. And he was so emphatic about that, he repeats it again in the next verse. Though we or an angel from heaven or anybody else preach any other message other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, let him be accursed. It is, in the Greek, it is the word anathema. And it means let him be banished. Let him be totally annihilated and cast away. I know that we live in a very progressive age here in uh, this 21st century. And I recognize and I understand that, at least here in America, that most people do not see the church in the same light that maybe the church used to be seen in in previous generations here in America. It's sad, but today in America, there are most, most people don't see the Bible with the same value that they used to see the Bible in previous generations in America and I would even say that still today here in America that the majority of Americans don't see the pastor or the preacher in the same light that they used to see the pastor or the preacher in the community. It is just part of our progressive society where the things of God in the world's eyes are diminishing and diminishing and diminishing and people are looking other places for direction in life. Now, I know that Dr. Phil has some good things that he can say to help marriages and help relationships and have a good counsel, and I know that he's an expert in his field, and I appreciate what he does to help people, and, and I listen sometimes to some of the advice that he tells other people, and I appreciate that, but in my heart, I also know that if whatever Dr. Phil says happens to contradict the Bible, I'll choose the Bible every single time, Amen. I also know that in modern psychology, people like Carl Jung and Eric Erickson and B.F. Skinner and many others have made positive contributions to the understanding of human behavior. And they have helped, helped uh, communicate skill sets that would help people navigate through some struggles of life. And I appreciate that. My undergrad is in, is in psychology, and I have studied that, and I know some of that stuff. But where modern psychology, anytime it contradicts the Bible, I'll go with the Bible every single time. Time. I just believe that God has in His Word what we need for, for a whole, uh, healthy, mature, spiritual life. But sometimes the world goes to other places to look for the advice and the counsel that only God can give. You see, the Christian life is lived out with a biblical worldview. We read the Scripture we surrender to the authority of God's Word, and we let God's Word uh, guide us and direct us. So without apology, this nameless preacher comes to Jeroboam, this king of the north, and he gives him a very uncomfortable message. Look at this, if you will. So you have, if you're taking notes, your first bullet point is the unknown messenger. Look at his uncomfortable message in verse 2. He cried against the altar... In the word of the Lord, and he said, look at this. 
O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee he shall offer the priest of the high places that burns incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burned upon thee. And this nameless preacher gives a prophecy right here in front of the whole world and Jeroboam the king. That one day all of this is going to come crashing down, verse 3. He gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn. The ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. Now, it was a very uncomfortable message. It has been said that the job of every preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Well, this guy certainly afflicted the, the comfortable, and he, he uh, made no bones about it. Because as Jeroboam is there before the altar getting ready to have this great dedication service, here comes this nameless preacher. And right in the middle of Jeroboam's time to shine, this preacher steps up and he says, Oh, altar, altar. One of these days, there's going to come somebody who's going to tear all of this down. This altar's going to be spilt, uh, going to be split in half, and all the sacrifices that have been offered on it, all of those ashes are going to come, come pouring out. Now, Jeroboam is thinking, This is pretty disturbing. In fact, probably, and I looked at this and looked at this. Probably what disturbs him most, look at the phrase back in verse number 2 that says, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David. Now listen, where was the house of David? That's the southern kingdom, Judah, right? So this was a prophecy that, that, that one day there would be one from David's line, and he's talking specifically here about a man by the name of Josiah who would not come on the scene for some 300 years. But when Josiah comes on the scene, he's going to tear down all of these places that, that, uh, that Jeroboam had built. So right here in the middle of his time to shine, Jeremiah, I mean, excuse me, excuse me Jeroboam is like, how dare you? Come into to this place, and while I'm living my best life, and while I'm talking about my own truth and my own reality, that you start talking about this whole place is going to be destroyed one of these days. It was a very uncomfortable message, but yet that was the message that God gave this preacher to preach. And as he is delivering the message, this is, maybe you didn't know this was in the Bible, as he's preaching this message, Jeroboam points at him, and he says, arrest that man. And just as he points at him, the Bible says, Jeroboam's hand shrivels up, and it's like his arm is frozen in place, and he can't put it back down. Look what it says in verse 4. came to pass when the king Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he had cried against the altar in Bethel, the house of God, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, lay hold on him. Look at this. And his hand which he put forth against him dried up so that he could not pull it again to him. And the altar, just as was predicted, was split. The ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. I'm not exactly how all, sure how all of this played out. But in my mind's eye, I can just see Jeroboam making this big speech. 
Don't go down to Solomon's temple. Don't go down to those southern tribes in Judah down there in Jerusalem and worship at Passover. You stay up here in the north and you worship here at Bethel or at Dan. And when, and when, uh, when uh, the man of God speaks against that and Jeroboam points at him, his hand dries up. And his arm is frozen in place as evidence that what the preacher was saying was, was the truth. It was an uncomfortable message. But look at this undeserved miracle. This is our third bullet point. Look in verse number 6. The king answered and said to the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord your God. Look what he says. Pray for me that my hand would be restored again. Now, it's interesting that he cared nothing about God and that he would build false gods, false places of worship, institute a whole false system of worship. And do you not find it interesting that he doesn't pray to one of his own gods? Or he doesn't consult one of his own priests? He knew there was no power in them. So what does he do? He comes to this man of God and he says, pray for me that God would heal my hand. Now he didn't pray for himself. Look what happens in verse 6, in the middle part. The man of God besought the Lord. Now, he's got to be a better guy than me, right? You know what I would want to say? You pray for yourself. You got yourself in this mess. That's what we're tempted to say because we get frustrated sometimes with the way the lost people might treat God. God, you just stay over here. If I need you, I'll call you. But don't interrupt my life while I'm doing what I need to do. That was really Jeroboam's um, Modus uh, operandi. God, you just stay where you are. If I need you, I'll call you. And now that his hand is shriveled up, his arm is stuck up in the air, and he says to the man of God, would you pray for me that my hand would be restored again? Look at what he says. The man of God besought the Lord. Look at this undeserved miracle. And the king's hand was restored again and became as it was before. Isn't that a great miracle? It is so simple when we read that, but it just tells me what a gracious God we have. What an incredible God of mercy and grace who would allow his healing to come into this wicked king's life and to restore him to health again. I read not too long ago about an advertisement that was on the side of a plumber's van. And the advertisement said something to this effect. There is no job too dirty, too deep, or too dark for us to take care of. And you know, I think about that in relation to God's grace. That God's grace would say to us, there is no life that is too dirty, that is too deep, or that is too dark that the grace of God can't come and bring, a, bring an incredible miracle. That's why John Newton called it amazing grace. And he said, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This king who's healed, he's so grateful. He says to this man of God, you come on over to my house. I'm going to give you a reward. We're going to have dinner together. And, uh, and then we'll just go from there. And uh, unfortunately, God had already told this man of God, no, you can't do that. You can't... Uh, you can't go to his house, you can't eat a crumb from his table, you can't drink a drink from his well, and this man of God tells him that. So he just 
in turn, after he says what he needs to say, gets on his donkey, and he leaves the town of Bethel, heading back to Judah. Somewhere on the way, he encounters another unnamed man. This was an unnamed prophet. If you look back in verse number 11, so now you have two unnamed men of God. The first one who spoke to Jeroboam, and now this second guy. We don't know anything about him is either, but verse number 11 simply calls him an old prophet in Bethel. Here's what, you, what most Bible scholars are saying about this old prophet who lived in Bethel. That all of his life he lived in, the, in Bethel, in that area, and when Jeroboam came to power and began to institute this false system of worship, that not one single time did this old prophet ever speak out against that. Not one single time did he declare the truth. Listen, the world doesn't have trouble sharing its truth. Let's don't be bashful about sharing God's truth. You know, anytime we share a Sunday school lesson or uh, preach a message, it's not ours, it's, it's God's. I didn't write it. I can't change it. I wouldn't try to change it. It means what it says, and we're just to unleash it and let God's truth speak for itself. But this old prophet didn't do that. So now, as you have this man of God leaving Judah, he has an unexpected meeting with this old prophet in Bethel. Look at it in verse 14. If you're listening, say amen. amen. So this, this, uh, this old prophet hears from his sons what this man of God said to Jeroboam when the altar split in half and his arm got frozen. They tell him about it. Verse 14. So he gets on his donkey. He goes after the man of God. Look at this, verse 14. He finds him in this unexpected meeting, sitting under an oak tree. And he said to him, are you the man of God that came from Judah? He said, yes, I am. He said to him, now look at this, the same thing the king said. You come on over to my house, and you sit with me, and you eat bread. It's the exact same thing that the king had told him. And then his reply is, I'm not supposed to do that. God told me not to eat anything from anybody's table here. Don't drink any of the water here. I'm just to go back to Judah. But look what happens in verse 18. He said to him, now this is the old prophet talking. I am a prophet also, as you are. An angel spake to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Now I have underlined these five words in my Bible, but he lied to him. You know, Jesus said, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. There were, in fault, there were false prophets in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah is the one who wrote the book of 1 Kings. There were uh, false prophets in Jesus' day. There were false prophets in the Apostle Paul's day. And there are false prophets in our day. And sometimes it may be difficult to identify them because they may have a big following. They may look the part. They may pretend to preach the word. But listen, if you listen carefully, not to just what they say, but what they don't say, it reveals itself every single time. Every single time. Because your spirit doesn't bear witness with someone who is a 
false prophet. But unfortunately, with this, with this man of God, he is deceived by this old prophet's words. You know what he does? He, he believes him. Maybe he's naive. We don't know. But he gets up and he goes to this old prophet's house. It's really an unfortunate scene that he fell for this lie. He was deceived. He got on his donkey. He followed him. And in so doing, had disobeyed what God had said to do. And it led to some unfortunate consequences. Go to verse 21. He cried to the man of God that came from Judah, saying... Now, this is the old prophet who lived in Bethel. He's talking to the prophet of Ju- uh, that came up from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as you have disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and has not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded, look at this, but came back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which the Lord said to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water, he says, Your carcass shall not come to the sepulcher of your father. Here's what this prophet from Bethel says to this nameless prophet from Judah. Because you did come to my house and did as God asked you not to do, when you die, you'll never have the privilege of being buried with your family members in their family cemetery, which for the Jewish people was something very precious. When a Jewish person died, their body was washed. It was wrapped in a linen garment. It was placed in a tomb. They would roll the stone away. The body placed in the tomb right next to the bodies or the bones of their ancestors. And that's, that's, that was Jewish culture. But now here this old prophet tells this prophet from Judah, because you disobeyed God, you'll never get to be buried with your ancestors And it led to these unfortunate consequences. Go to verse number 24 and look what happens. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way. Now this is the prophet from Judah. He leaves the house of the old prophet, headed back down to Judah. When he was gone, look what happens. A lion met him by the way. And the ass stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass and came and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Here's what happens. When this this man of God from Judah has dinner with the old prophet who told him a lie, The man from God heads back to Judah, and on his way back, he is killed by a lion. Now, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Many Bible scholars say it was a judgment of God that fell on this man for disobeying God's word and believing what this prophet had said. I don't disagree with that, but here's my thinking. I would think if anybody ought to get eaten by the lion, it's the prophet who told the lie in the first place, right? That's not what happens. It is this other guy who comes from Judah who had the audacity to stand and confront Jeroboam when he's offering these sacrifices and said, Oh, altar, altar, this thing's going to split wide open and God's going to wipe all of this away. And he did what God asked him to do, but now as he's heading back home, lo and behold, he gets killed by a lion. And the, the Bible pictures him with his dead body lying in the street, the donkey on one side that he was riding, 
the lion on the other side and his dead body in the middle. The lion's not devoured the guy. The lion's not killed the donkey. But the lion certainly does kill the man. Look in verse 26. When the prophet that brought him back from the way heard about it, he said, look at this. Now this is the old prophet who lied to him. It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord, which he spake to him. Do you know what's missing there? Not one time does that old prophet say, this is the guy that I deceived. This is the guy that I tried to destroy. This is the guy that I tried to ruin his reputation and ruin his life. He just offers this sad commentary and he says, it is, the, it is the man who spoke to Jeroboam. He disobeyed God and now this lion has killed him. Go down to verse 31. I told you it's a lengthy section. Verse 31. It came to pass after that he had buried him. He spoke to his son saying, now this is the old prophet. Maybe he feels badly about what happened. Maybe he is remorseful that he uh, lied to him in the first place. But what he's going to do now is he takes the dead body of this man and he's going to bury him himself. He says to his sons, he says, when I'm dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried and lay my bones beside his bones. For the say in which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel and against the house of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. So he says to his boys, when it comes my time to die, bury me with this man of God who came up from Judah. And let my bones be placed right by his bones. Now, you say to me, Pastor Darrell, I really appreciate you preaching through 1 Kings. But what in heaven's name does that have to do with me right here today? I'm trying to raise my children and pay my bills. I'm trying to get my kids through school, and I'm taking care of a sick loved one, and my job is draining the very life out of me. What in the world does all of this that you had to say today, what in the world does that have to say to me right here in 2022 in good old Surrey County? A couple of things I think are worth noting. When you look at that donkey and that lion that this prophet encountered, he's riding the lion and he's killed, uh, riding the donkey, he's killed by the lion. One Bible commentator says this. He says that it is symbolic of the choices that we make in life. And that Jesus said, there's a wise man and the foolish man, and they both built their houses. The wise man built his house on the rock. And the foolish man built his house on the sand. The rains came, the winds blew, the floodwaters began to rise. And he said, the wise man whose house was built on the rock, that his house stood the storm. But the foolish man, he says, when the same rain came, the same wind blew, the same floodwaters uh, began to rise, he said, that man's house fell, and great was the fall of it. And this Bible commentator says, in riding that donkey or walking with that lion, he says, he says, when you walk in obedience with God, it's like walking with the pride and the confidence of a lion. 
But when you disobey the Word of God, it's like living in the stubbornness and the obstinance of that old donkey. So perhaps this man of God who made this mistake and he, he was killed by this lion, you know, you really look at that and maybe God has shown you some other things there that, uh, that I've not pointed out to you today. But this, this man of God, I think what happens is this. Jeroboam hears about this happening. And when he hears the man who confronted him at the altar in verses 1, 2, and 3 is now dead, you know what he's thinking? Hey, my God's here and, and Bethel and Dan are greater than the God down in Jerusalem. After all, his representative from Jerusalem, he's dead. And it only empowers him and emboldens him to become more brazen and more brash. In fact, not only do you see, and I'm going to, I'm going to give them to you by way of review, the unknown messenger and the uncomfortable message and the undeserved miracle and the unexpected meeting and the unfortunate consequences, finally, with this great crescendo, you see the unchanged heart. You see, this chapter begins with King Rehoboam. The, uh, excuse me, Jeroboam, the uh, jealous king. It concludes with Jeroboam, the jealous king. Now listen, this jealous king had witnessed the altar split. He had witnessed his arm freeze and his hand dried up. And you would think, and he had witnessed even getting healed from that, and you would think that would be enough to soften his frozen heart. Though his arm came unfrozen, his heart never did. And he was unrepentant toward God. Look in verse 33, if you will. After this thing, look at this now. Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but he made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And look at this. And this became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. In the hardness of his heart, Jeroboam says, I'm going to keep this country divided. And a house that is divided will not stand. Instead of repenting, Instead of, in humility, calling on the very God who heals him and rescues him, Jeroboam just hardens his heart even more like Pharaoh and refuses to soften his heart and turn toward God and in so doing keeps this fractured nation a divided nation. Now, in closing, here's what he should have done. When Jeroboam gets word of this lion who kills this man of God who comes up from Judah. It was a real lion? Yes. Scripture is accurate when it tells us that? Yes, 100%. But now listen carefully, and we're going to close in a couple of minutes. It is also representative of something else. Jeroboam knew this, but he didn't act on it. All the way back in Genesis 49, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, calls all of his boys together. You remember this scene? And he speaks over every one of their lives and he tells them what's going to happen to their lives in the future. 
For example, he says to the oldest boy, Reuben, he said, Reuben, you are as unstable as water. Remember, Reuben, being the eldest, should have rescued Joseph from the well when his brothers threw him in the well, but instead Reuben kind of went right along with it. And uh, so now Jacob says, Reuben, you're as unstable as water, and you forfeited your birthright. He says, say, to Benjamin, for example. Benjamin was the youngest of the children. And Jacob says, Benjamin, your tribe is going to be great warriors and great military leaders. And you know that was the case with the tribe of Benjamin. The most powerful warriors in all of Scripture came from the tribe of Benjamin. He says to, say, Joseph, for example, who didn't get a tribe because he was sold into slavery. But Joseph's boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, both got a tribe and Joseph kind of got a double portion through his boys. So Jacob is t- sharing this with all of his kids. And this is what he says to one of his boys named Judah. Jacob says, oh Judah, you are like a young lion cub. You are like a, a young lion cub that crouches down and waits for its prey, and he says basically that there's going to come a day when the real lion of Judah will come to power, and his kingdom will never end. And there's only two times in the Scripture when this lion of Judah is mentioned. One is all the way back in Genesis 49, and the other is where we're going to close out this morning in Revelation 5. Would you turn to Revelation 5 and look at this lion of Judah, if you will. Now remember, this uh, lion that kills the prophet is symbolic, so to speak, of this other lion who will come, and he will be the perfect priest where all the other priests were flawed, the perfect king where all the other kings were flawed, the perfect prophet where all the other prophets were flawed. Look at this in chapter 5. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, This, of course, is John's vision. And in Revelation chapter 5, he says, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book that is written on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. In other words, he sees this scroll in the hand of this angel and no one in heaven nor earth has the authority or the power to come and to open that scroll and read it. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep not, behold, look is what he says, look. What am I to look at? <clears throat> the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, or the descendants of David. What was it that disturbed Jeroboam so much in the opening verses? That there would come somebody from the family of David who would clean up all of this mess. That prophecy was directly talking about Josiah, but it pictured uh, the second coming of our Savior, or the the time that John would see him here in Revelation chapter 5, as the the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Look at this. He has prevailed to open his book and to loose the seven seals. And John, look at this now in verse 6. And, behold, and I beheld, and lo, in the middle of the throne of the four beasts and of the midst of the elders stood. What was he looking to see? A lion. 
But what does he see? A lamb. Remember that he's told, look, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He turns to look at it. He doesn't see a lion, but what does he see? I see in the midst of an elder, of the elders, there stood a lamb. Now look at this. As it had been slain. He describes it. And he says, and he came and he took the book out of the hand of him that sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. They sung a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. For look at this. For you were slain. That is Jesus, the lamb. Slain before the foundations of the world. You were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, the beasts, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory, and honor. What does John see? But the crucified, risen, resurrected Savior who came the first time as a lamb slain now would appear as the lion, the conquering hero who comes to do just like the Old Testament prophet said to Jeroboam, he's going to clean all of this mess up. Today, if your house is divided, listen, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He'd clean that mess up for you, can't he, church? You feel divided in your heart toward your work, toward your spouse, toward your kids, toward life, toward God. I want you to let the lion of the tribe of Judah come and do a work in your life where he'll heal that broken spirit and that hurt in your life. And do just as he's able to do, clean up the mess that we make out of life. Let's pray together. Lord, I recognize this has been enough that we could have preached three messages out of this. But Lord, I'm only doing what I feel like you've led me to do today. And God, as we now come to this time where we have a hymn of invitation and just invite folk to make decisions, Lord, I pray that no one in this place would leave this on the pages of the Bible, but that we would take this and see that this lion who came the first time as a lamb, the Lord Jesus, died on the cross to take all of our sins, all of our guilty stains, and to remind us of your grace that goes deeper and farther and visits those darker places than we could ever imagine and brings forgiveness. And Lord, he is now, as your son, the resurrected lion of the tribe of Judah who will come back one of these days and every house divided you'll fix. Take this invitation. God, use it in a way that will honor you and glorify you. Draw people to yourself. If there's one here today that's never been saved, I pray they would come. Or others who want to unite with our church family, you just do what you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.